0: I'm now going to share my thoughts about cantos 15 through 20 of Tennyson's In Memoriam A.H.H. For canto 15, I can't do better than to share the beautiful words of critic and poet Stopford Brooke. Let me say first that studying great poetry for me is often an amalgamated joy, a synergistic pleasure because criticism can be found that both illuminates the beauty of a poem and possesses a beauty all its own. I was already moved by Tennyson's description of the rising storm in this canto and his fears for the safety of the ship, but seeing it through Brooke's eyes made it breathtaking. Brooke's description is, in itself, poetry. And in addition to that, there is a special pleasure in witnessing the poet's appreciation of a fellow poet, in reading the eloquent and uninhibited gratitude of an artist for his spiritual brother. Here's what Stopford Brooke had to say about these stanzas. Quote, "'The tempest begins with what is close at hand, the wood by which he stands at sunset.' And then, after that last admirable line, which fills the whole sky with the gale, he lifts his eyes, and we see with him the whole world below painted also in four lines—the forest, the waters, the meadows, struck out, each in one word, and the wildness of the wind and the width of the landscape given, as Turner would have given them, by the low shaft of storm-shaken sunlight, "'dashed from the west right across the east. "'Lastly, to heighten the impression of the tempest, "'to show the power it will have when the night is come, "'to add a far horizon to the solemn world, "'he paints the rising wrath of the storm "'in the cloud above the ocean rim, "'all aflame with warlike sunset. "'It is well done, but whosoever reads the whole will feel that the storm of the human heart is higher than the storm of nature. Exploring the works of the artist referenced by Brooke, J.M.W. Turner, added another dimension to my enjoyment still. I had had trouble grasping what it would mean for the sun to dash wildly on tower and tree. Now, having seen Turner's works, I understand." I have included an image by Turner in the Facebook group, so that you can see what I mean. Here again is Canto 15. Tonight the winds begin to rise, and roar from yonder dropping day. The last red leaf is whirled away, the rooks are blown about the skies. The forest cracked, the waters curled, the cattle huddled on the lee, And wildly dashed on tower and tree, The sunbeam strikes along the world. And but for fancies, Which aver that all thy motions gently pass Athwart a plain of molten glass, I scarce could brook the strain And stir that makes the barren branches loud. And but for fear it is not so. The wild unrest that lives in woe Would dote and pour on yonder cloud That rises upward, always higher, And onward drags a laboring breast And topples round the dreary west A looming bastion, fringed with fire. Tennyson has moved from calm despair To wild unrest, and in Canto sixteen He now wonders how, or whether, it is possible for sorrow to take on such disparate forms in the heart of a single man. He wonders whether this despair and unrest are the mere surface expressions of a deep and abiding grief, only seeming to change in reflection of the changing environment. Or perhaps Hallam's death has left him stunned and delirious, unable to think, unable to plan, unable to distinguish fantasy from reality. Perhaps he is staggering blindly, like a foundering ship about to sink. Again, there is a painful sort of meta-grief in Tennyson's musings here. He has felt not just pain, but guilt for feeling pain. Here, he feels not just grief, but a self-doubting confusion over the form of his grief. That he can express such psychological honesty in such beautiful poetry— Is truly breathtaking. Here again is Canto Sixteen. What words are these, have fallen from me? Can calm despair and wild unrest Be tenants of a single breast, Or sorrow such a changeling be? Or doth she only seem to take the touch of change In calm or storm, But knows no more of transient form In her deep self, than some dead lake that holds the shadow of a lark hung in the shadow of a heaven? Or has the shock, so harshly given, confused me like the unhappy bark that strikes by night a craggy shelf and staggers blindly ere she sink, and stunned me from my power to think and all my knowledge of myself, and made me that delirious man whose fancy fuses old and new, and flashes into false and true, and mingles all without a plan. In Canto 17, the ship arrives, bearing its precious burden. Tennyson feels as if his whispered prayers were transfigured into the breeze that moved the sails. For weeks he has watched the progress of the ship in his imagination, able to think of nothing else, consumed by the urgent and achingly beautiful thought, Come quick, thou bringest all I love. He gives the ship his blessing, hoping it will act like a beacon of light to lead the vessel safely through calm waters and balmy summer rain, because it has done the precious office of bringing his friend home. A whispered prayer as the ocean breeze the horizon as circles of the bounding sky, a blessing as a beacon that guards the ship home, and gentle rain as sliding from the bosom of the stars. There is so much gentle beauty in these verses. Here is Canto 17. Thou comest much wept for, Such a breeze compelled thy canvas, And my prayer was as the whisper of an air To breathe thee over lonely seas. For I in spirit saw thee move, Through circles of the bounding sky, Week after week, the days go by, Come quick, thou bringest all I love. Henceforth, wherever thou mayest roam, My blessing, like a line of light, Is on the waters day and night, And like a beacon guards thee home. So may whatever tempest mars mid-ocean Spare thee sacred bark, And balmy drops in summer dark Slide from the bosom of the stars. So kind an office hath been done, Such precious relics brought by thee. The dust of him I shall not see till all my widowed race be run. In Canto eighteen, the ship has arrived, and his friend's dear remains are to be laid in English earth. Tennyson tries to take what comfort he can from knowing his friend will be buried in his native land, among familiar names and childhood places. Tis well, tis something. He invites not just his friends' mourners and pallbearers to hear the funeral rites, but whatever loves to weep, as if everything on earth that embodies sadness should come to stand witness to this most sad moment of all. But even as he watches the funeral procession, he is overcome by disbelieving love. These lines were very hard for me to read. He says that if he could— he would fall on his friend and breathe life through his lips. That image of a despairing wish is painful enough, but that he would breathe not just life, but his own dying life, dying from pain over his friend's death, makes it still more poignant. He feels like he breathes his last because of his friend's death, and his only wish is to use his last breath, to restore his friend to life. But it is an idle dream, and instead he must try to endure by treasuring his memories. Here is Canto 18. "'Tis well, tis something, we may stand where he in English earth is laid, and from his ashes may be made the violet of his native land. "'Tis little," But it looks in truth as if the quiet bones Were blessed among familiar names to rest, And in the places of his youth. Come then, pure hands, And bear the head that sleeps, Or wears the mask of sleep, And come, whatever loves to weep, And hear the ritual of the dead. Ah, yet, even yet, If this might be, I, Falling on his faithful heart, Would, breathing through his lips, Impart the life that almost dies in me, That dies not, but endures with pain, And slowly forms the firmer mind, Treasuring the look it cannot find, The words that are not heard again. In Canto 19, The Tides of the River Wye near which his friend is buried, become a metaphor for Tennyson's sorrow. When it rises and fills, it becomes still and silent. It babbles only as it flows down. So, too, Tennyson, when he is overcome by deepest anguish, feels stilled and silenced by despair, with tears that will not fall, and a song that has been drowned." It is only when the tide of emotions flows down, and his pain ebbs, that he can speak at all. In other words, all the heartbreaking sentiment he has expressed is the reflection of his lesser grief. The deeper despair is unutterable. Here is Canto 19. The Danube to the Severn gave the darkened heart that beat no more. They laid him by the pleasant shore, and in the hearing of the wave. There, twice a day, the severn fills. The salt sea-water passes by, and hushes half the babbling wye, and makes a silence in the hills. The wye is hushed, nor moved along, and hushed my deepest grief of all. When filled with tears that cannot fall, I brim with sorrow, drowning song. The tide flows down. The wave again is vocal in its wooded walls. My deeper anguish also falls. And I can speak a little then. In Canto Twenty, he likens this lesser grief to that felt by the servants in a house where the master has died. They are able to give voice to their emotions, to speak their feeling as it is, and weep the fullness from the mind, because their grief is light enough to be expressed. His deeper grief is likened to that felt for the same master by his children, who sit in cold and deathly silence, or move like phantoms, unable to speak, and scarcely able to draw breath. They cannot voice their anguish, but can only feel a sort of delirious and incoherent pain." the clearest thought they can summon, the unpoetic. How good, how kind. And he is gone. In Cyrano de Bergerac, there is a scene in which Cyrano, the great poet, is so overwhelmed by pure love that he can no longer arrange words in tidy bouquets, but instead must shower his love with loose blooms. This last stanza is like that scene's tragic counterpart with Tennyson sometimes able only to throw loose blooms of grief.